Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. into it. Uh, We are looking at Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 16 today. Um, Last service, I went over quite a bit, and the content for this morning uh, makes that a little bit ironic. So we're just going to move pretty quickly, at least through this first part, okay? So uh, in verse 1 uh, through 6 of chapter 20, we've been doing Acts for quite a while here, um, we find Paul on what is oftentimes referred to as his third missionary journey, and this is the tail end of it. So he's already done like a lot of ministry is what we need to know leading up to this point, okay? And uh, we find at the very beginning of the passage that he's in the city of Ephesus. Um, there was a huge riot that broke out. We talked about that last week, and uh, that along with a couple, couple other things made him uh, feel like he needed to, to leave town. And eventually his goal is to get back to Jerusalem, touch base with everybody who's in Jerusalem and the Jerusalem church, and then eventually get over to Rome because his, his story is not done. He's got plenty that he still wants to accomplish. But as he does that, he takes like the longest roundabout way to get back to Jerusalem. And the reason is he wants to touch base with all these churches that he's been a part of planting and encouraging and, and coming alongside. And so what we find as he leaves Ephesus, he gets on a boat, and he heads over to Macedonia, uh, modern-day Europe, and he kind of wanders around through there. That's the best way I can say to, uh, to describe it. There's lots of little twists and turns that come with that because uh, people are out to kill him all the time, and he has to, like, change what he's doing. That's just, like, normal life, day in the life of Paul's situation. Um, but he ends up hitting pretty much every church that he's been a part of, encouraging. He writes a few of the letters that we have access to in the New Testament during this time. And even though it's just a few short verses, just six of them, um, this is probably, people agree, about a year's worth of time crammed into these few verses. And uh, it kind of reminds me, it's just, it's travel details, so it kind of reminds me of... uh, the, the, the sections in Indiana Jones, if you've ever watched those movies, where there's like a map and there's like the red line with the little airplane that goes around. Like that's kind of what's happening here. Year, a whole year worth of encounters and trials and encouragement and difficulties, a whole year worth of that kind of stuff, yet we only get the broad strokes of what happened here. All in effort for him to finally get back to Jerusalem and eventually off to Rome. Now, what's interesting to me is with all of those interactions and experiences, encounters that he has, when we get to verse seven in uh, this passage of scripture, all of a sudden, it's like clipping along right there, a whole year has passed, all of a sudden it comes like a dead stop. And Luke makes a point to tell this specific story, which we're gonna look at today. Um, At first glance, I'll be really honest, it it doesn't make a ton of sense to me why of all the interactions, surely a lot of really cool ones, this was the one that Luke felt like we needed to to have access to in the book of Acts. As I work through it, and I think as we work through it this morning, we'll find that it actually is really helpful and challenging and encouraging. But time's clipping along, a year has passed, and then all of a sudden they stop and we get a little bit of a, of a zoomed in picture of something that happens in a city called Troas. And this is a familiar city as we've read through the book of Acts. He's been there a few times. There's a group of believers there. And 
what we find is that by the time he got to Troas, his time was starting to get cut short. He ran into some trouble as he was headed there. We won't go into detail about that, but he didn't have as much time with them as he was hoping that he would have. Um, eventually, what we find is he only really got like a week's worth of time. And so he spent six days like being with this church, encouraging this church, probably do some teaching uh, with this church. And then on the last day that, was, that he was there, he decides to just go for it, to use e- literally every second of his time with these believers before leaving that city. And that's where this story that we're gonna look at today occurs. So if you want to follow along with me, you can turn to chapter 20. We're gonna read verses, we're gonna start reading at verse seven. Uh, you might notice I'm reading the Christian Standard Bible translation. The one that's in the pew rack in front of you is the ESV. They're both good. Um, but this one, I think, explains it just a little bit better. So if it looks a little different, that's, that's probably why. So let's read it together. This is what happens in this moment that Luke thought was important enough to stop and tell an in-depth story about. On the first day of the week, we assembled to break bread. Uh, that first person language means Luke, the author of Acts, was most likely with them during this time. And the, they got together and it says, Paul spoke to them. And since he was about to depart the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. So a couple clarifications here. Uh, When when we read in scripture that they assembled to break bread, it wasn't just like, hey, we're meeting up to eat together. Like they were having church. Um, There was usually a meal attached to it. They would observe the Lord's Supper. They would sing together. They would pray together. They would encourage together. People would bring words of encouragement and challenge to each other. And there would be teaching. And we see all of those things present. So it's not a stretch to say when they got together, they had church and they had church for a while, right? All the way up till midnight. Now, when we read this, we read that Paul kept on talking until midnight and we probably filter it through like our modern conception of what church is. And we gotta, we gotta stop and, and really like get a accurate picture of probably what was happening here. When we hear about coming together for a church service and someone talking for a long time, you think of this, Right? You come into a building, there's one person at the front, there's a whole bunch of people out there. And so that's what it's easy to envision, is a whole bunch of these Christians from this little family of believers, they all came into this place and they watched Paul from a central place just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk, which would be brutal, right? (laughs) If I just talked until midnight, that would be kind of brutal, right? No one wants that. But the reality is that's not really the picture we get of how the church functions in any capacity, but especially in this situation, uh, there was likely a lot of back and forth, conversation, discourse. There was some teaching, there was some preaching, but there was also eating, there was likely praying, and it was a participatory event, which is what church should be. And we're like working toward that here at this family of believers. It's It's what it was meant to be. Now, whether one person was talking for hours and hours or they were there for hours and hours, it's still a long time. And scripture wants to, to, wants to communicate that pretty clearly to us. They talked and talked until midnight. Uh, also, they weren't in like this big building like we experience here. What we find is they were on the third floor of a building um, in, in what's referred to as an upper room together. So a bunch of people likely crammed into a small space at night um, just spending a ton of time together. Luke adds a couple details here that are important. In verse eight, he says, there were many lamps in the room upstairs where we were assembled. Um, that's a very odd detail to add into this, but it's gonna pop up later. So keep it in the back of your mind. So they're in this room. It's probably kind of stuffy, probably kind of hot, probably kind of fumey from all the oil lamps 
Um, and a ton of people were there and there for a long time. And then we get introduced to kind of the central character, I guess, of this story, a, a young man named Eutychus. Now, a couple things on Eutychus. Uh, what a name, by the way. My goodness. Um, this is, refers to him in this sentence as a young man. Um, but later on, he's referred to as a boy. So there's been some debate on like actually how old was this kid? Was he like 17, 18, 19 year old? Was he like a five year old? Uh, most people come to a general consensus somewhere between like 10 and 12. Like that's, that's likely where, where he was at. So not like a baby that they brought to church, but not like, uh, like almost an adult either, like just that really awkward middle school adolescence like place, right? That no one has ever enjoyed being at in the history of the world. But that's, he was there most likely brought by his parents, good on his parents for bringing this kid to church and then hanging until midnight with this kid, top tier parenting. Um, but then it goes kind of sideways, as we're going to see. We get introduced to him, and we find him sitting on a windowsill. And Scripture tells us that he sank into a deep sleep as Paul kept on talking. So he's with them. He maybe goes to get some air, just try to keep himself awake. And we find he's sitting on a windowsill, and he just kind of can't handle it anymore, and he falls asleep. Scripture says when he was overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was picked up dead. So he falls asleep. I know, crazy, right? He falls asleep in this windowsill, falls out the window to the ground and is dead. What does the church do? In verse 10, it says, but Paul went down, bent over him, embraced him and said, don't be alarmed because he is alive. Just real quick clarification there. There's some debate because of the language here is like, did he not actually die? Was he actually still alive? Or did Paul bring him back from the dead? I'm inclined to believe the latter. It's already happened twice in the book of Acts. I don't know why we would like mince words on this particular one. Very likely he was dead. Paul went down, embraced him, and this kid came back to life. What do they do after this? They don't call it quits. Verse 11 says, after going upstairs, breaking the bread and eating, Paul talked a long time until dawn. So pulled an all-nighter, the first ever all-nighter in the history of the church world, right? Much better than the ones probably we were involved with. But he talked a long time until dawn, and then he left. He left town. That was the last thing that he did with this, uh, with this church in Troas. Verse 12 kind of delves into what the church was feeling. They brought the boy home alive and were greatly comforted. So this was like a great source of comfort for this church, as Paul very likely left thinking, I'll never see these people again. So interesting story kind of weird story in some ways. Um, but I find myself asking the question, like I mentioned earlier, like of all the encounters over the past year, of all the situations, of all the teaching, of all the things that Paul and his friends must have experienced with all these churches in Macedonia, which were like massively successful churches in a lot of ways. Like they were doing a lot of really good work for the kingdom. Why in the world would he stop at this, stop the pace like right here and highlight this interaction? Like, why would he do that? That's the, that's the question that I've been like grappling with when I kind of got assigned this passage of scripture to work through. And as I search for these answers, uh, I'll be pretty honest, I found myself getting pretty frustrated at some of the things that I was running across. Um, when I prepare a sermon or prepare a message, um, part of my process is 
to see what some other people have to say about this. I don't assume that I'm the smartest person in the world, and certainly there are people who have much greater grasp on culture and language and all this stuff. And so very often, uh, all the time really, I'll go to commentaries, I'll look up articles, I'll listen to maybe what some other pastors had to say about this, see if there's any insights maybe I never thought of. And then I submit all that stuff to the Holy Spirit and I say, well, God, what, what do you want to say to our church, to our uh, like faith community that's accurate to your word and to what's going on here? And I'll be really honest, I did not find much that was worth like listening to. I found like such a wide range of interpretations when it comes to this particular story in the book of Acts. And most of them felt like they were motivated by some kind of agenda. You know, like when you're talking to someone and they're not telling you that, they're, that they have an agenda, but like, you know, they have an agenda. You know what I'm talking about? Like it's, they think they're being sneaky, but they're not really. You know what they're trying to get across here. It felt like that. Most of the uh, like interpretations I saw of this tended to villainize either one side or the other. They kind of villainized Paul, some of them, for not paying attention to how this church was feeling. Then others villainized Eutychus for what he did. And almost all of it, as I read it, I can only describe as this, and hopefully this makes sense to you, it all felt like really Reader's Digesty as I read them. You know, Reader's Digest, we've, we've had, some of us surely have had the experience of the, the great joy of reading a Reader's Digest. When I was a kid, we'd go to my grandparents' house, and that was like the only reading material there. That was it. They just had stacks and stacks and stacks of Reader's Digest. And they're just like these little books that tell these little fun, cutesy stories that maybe have a little moral attached to them. And they're about that deep, you know, in, in, in uh, thought or philosophy or whatever. And they're just kind of meant to be something you read when you're going to the bathroom or something. Like that's kind of like all they're really good for. And it, a lot of these takes on this passage of scripture felt kind of reader's digesty to me. It was stuff like this. Let me give some examples. It'd be like on the one side, they'd be like, well, you know, this is what happens when preachers preach too long. Har, har, har. You know, if you really want to stop a service and get home, just have someone fall off the balcony and the thing will stop just now, you know, unless you're like a Pentecostal church and they'll come bring them back from the dead and you'll just keep going for hours and hours. And on the other side, it's like, well, a teenager fell asleep during church. That's never happened before. These teenagers, they need to get with it, you know? Like I found an absurd, an alarming amount of approaches to this scripture in that vein. And, and I'm like, that cannot be it, right? That cannot, it cannot be that. That sermon should only be 20 minutes or teenagers really aren't good at being at church. Like what a weak, shallow approach to God's word. And I know we would all sit here and be like, yeah, that's ridiculous, but let's not pretend like we, not, we have all not been guilty of doing exactly that when we, went, when we run into scripture that's a little bit difficult. We take a really easy interpretation or we, or we find a way for it to support something we already think rather than doing the hard work of really finding out what in the world is this there for? In church, we live in a world, this is kind of a side tangent, but we live in a world where we have more access to good information about the word of God than anyone before us. We cannot be lazy when it comes to our study and meditating on scripture. I don't know if this is right or wrong to say, but people of the past kind of give a pass to. They only had so much available to them. We have no excuse. We have the internet and there's a lot of bad information out there, but there is so much good information for us to really understand and apply the word of God to our lives and really, really get why it's there and what it's trying 
to say. And the more like I looked into it and the more I spent time talking about it or uh, thinking about it, uh, I came across something that, I, that really provided a lot of clarity for me. And I think it will for us too. And I think it, it helps us understand why, what Luke is trying to get across here, why this is in there in the first place. And it all comes down to uh, an ancient view of sleep. So Luke wrote this originally to ancient people, right? Two people at that time when all this stuff was happening. And so he wrote it with them in mind. One of the things that gets said a lot in scripture study is, you know, the Bible was written for us, but not to us. Like we live in a world vastly different in, in a different part of the world that's vastly different than what scripture was originally written to. And so it's on us to do some work to really find out what it is that's trying to be said here. And one of the things that I think provides a lot of clarity is to understand how these ancient people at this time viewed sleep. When we say someone fell asleep, we think they fell asleep, right? They closed their eyes, their brain kind of turned off, and they rested. That's what we think of when we think of sleep. What we find in the ancient world, there was a lot more interpretations of sleep, and in fact, when you said someone fell asleep, it could mean a couple things and it could mean a lot of things all at once. Let me kind of show what I mean here. When Luke wrote this and they saw that someone fell asleep, of course their mind would jump to first a physical sleep. Eutychus closed his eyes, kind of brain turned off and he went into a, a state of sleep. But also sleep was used to describe death in the ancient world. So you could physically fall asleep, but if you said someone had fallen asleep, it could also mean that they died. We see that both in the Christian world and in the, the secular world, if that's how you want to say it. Like in, in uh, Thessalonians, in Corinthians, in Ephesians, Paul talks about how uh, those, he refers to those who have fallen asleep as people who have died, not just literally taken a nap, people who have actually died. So that would be something that these people who were reading this would be thinking about. Same in the, uh, the world outside the church or the, the way of Jesus. Uh, there was this Greek God named Hypnos and Hypnos had a brother and it was death. And so Hypnos would come and would make them fall asleep and then death would come right behind, would grab them and drag them to the underworld. So whether they were inside the church or outside the church, when they hear someone had fallen asleep, it could very much mean that somebody had died. And there was one more layer of this. If you said someone had fallen asleep, oftentimes it would be interpreted as bad choices, irresponsible behavior, a lack of awareness of what was going on. We might, we might equate it to our phrase today, like asleep at the wheel, right? Like just kind of barely functioning, but making some pretty bad choices and poor discernment along the way. Scripture has a ton to say about a spiritual, like sleepiness that comes into a person's life. Um, the place I already mentioned, there's, a, there's quite a call to stay awake, to stay alert, not to fall asleep. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells this parable, of the 10 virgins that are awaiting their, uh, the bridegroom to come and they have these lamps, which are also mentioned in Luke. So he's like, pay attention to these two things. They have these lamps and part of them run out of oil and they're not prepared for, uh, for the return and they fall asleep and they miss out on what Jesus is doing. 
Six times in Mark chapter 13, Jesus straight up tells his disciples and followers, stay awake, stay alert. And even in just a, a very physical example that we have in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, you remember the story, he takes his best friends away with him and he says, hey, let's pray together. And what do they do? They fall asleep, right? And Jesus comes to them and says, stay awake, stay alert, so that you will not fall into temptation. There is, what I'm trying to explain here is there's this big, big theme that runs all throughout the followers of Jesus of staying awake, staying alert, being aware of what God is doing and where he is doing it, and not to slip into a slumber that makes us completely miss what he's doing, or worse. Maybe there isn't a worse. So, with that in mind, knowing that that is something that Luke absolutely would expect his readers to connect, he would expect them to connect those dots, then we're left asking the same question here. Why is this story included? Of all the stories, why is this one included? I think it's actually pretty straightforward. I think the same point is to be taken for us today in 2023 in the United States of America in Modesto, California. We are meant to take the same point as the earliest readers were supposed to take when they read this. And that is to stay awake, to be alert, do not get spiritually sleepy. Do not get spiritually lazy. This is what Paul has been saying everywhere he's been going, all the way leading up to this interaction that we see. We read about it in his epistles. We see it as a pattern in his life. He goes to these churches and he's like, do not give up. I know things have been hard or things have been great. Do not give up. Jesus is worth it. Keep going. Do not like get lazy. Do not slip into complacency. Keep your zeal, keep your passion, keep running after Jesus. And then we get this literal like illustration, this literal object lesson, which would be really sad if the kid had died, but is like the perfect picture because he was raised back to life. The reality is church, I think we just have to grapple with this. This was a danger to the early church and it's also a danger to us today, right? We can, we, can, we can at least admit that, right? How many of us have just gotten tired of doing the right thing? How many of us have gotten tired of resisting some of our base instincts? How many of us have through our inattentiveness to God's mission and God's way and God's character have just found ourselves sliding into a place of spiritual complacency? How many of us have ended up in a similar place as Eutychus? If we're looking through a spiritual lens, it's a danger for them. It was a danger for him. It's a danger for us too. We have to be aware. We have to be alert. It's a massive theme in scripture. So knowing that and looking at the story through this lens, I want to draw our attention to a couple things that I think will be helpful for us today. As we pursue a, a state of readiness, a state of alertness for the things of God and not slip into a sleepy faith or relationship with him. And I wanna look at where this happened, how it happened, and what happened. That's the best way I could think to kind of split it out, all right? So the first thing, where did this happen? Where did this, this complacency occur in the life of this young follower of Jesus? I think it's really fascinating and worth paying attention to that he found himself in the middle of a pretty cool experience. Maybe having church all night doesn't sound like super exciting to you, but I mean, put yourself in, in the shoes of these people. They have Paul the apostle with them. 
they're together when maybe they don't get to be all the time. They're, I, I really, really doubt, and it's a little bit of an assumption, so you could argue it if you want, but I really doubt Paul was like barring the door saying, no, you guys can't leave. I have more than I want to say to you. It seems very likely that these Christians were excited to be there. They were passionate about their relationship with Jesus. They were soaking in every word that he had to say. I, I don't think Paul is a terrible enough communicator that he would just keep talking even though he could see everyone's eyes glazed over. I think it is very, very safe to assume that these Christians loved to be there. We see that, that there's care and challenge and encouragement and they're eating together and they're worshiping together and they're praying together. And yet in the middle of all of that, we see this guy slip into some sleepiness and then eventually fall out the window. I think that that has something to say to us because I think we have this false idea that if conditions were perfect, we would be so on fire for Jesus. Like, like if things were as they should be, we wouldn't have any struggle with getting sleepy when it comes to our faith. Like if they sang all the songs that I like at church, I would be worshiping every second of it, right? If the things that they said from the stage directly affected me and my stage of life and the things that I'm going to, then I would be so here for this. Man, if, I just, if my kids were just out of the house, if my kids were just out of the house, I'd have all kinds of time and effort to give to the kingdom of God and, and disciple making and all that stuff. If I had more money or more time, if I had more control over my life, if my circumstances around me just it would improve a little bit, then, then I would like really come out of this sleepy state and really, really just go after it in my relationship with Jesus. I think we have to just confront that. That's garbage. That's a garbage way of thinking. The people throughout human history who have been the most passionate about Jesus are the people who have been functioning in the worst of conditions. And you can't argue that. It's facts. It's these people who literally just staying alive is hard. And yet they are the most passionate about Jesus. And there's a bunch of people like us, and I'm not being condemning. I'm just talking to me so you figure it out for you. There's a bunch of us who have more control over our time than anybody in the rest of the world, have more resources available to us, have more opportunities than most of the world, and we're like, well, I don't know, just not feeling it so much. I wish some things would change, and if they did, if they did, man, I would wake up like that. I think that is dangerous, dangerous thinking. I think this serves as a warning to us. We could be in the absolute ideal conditions and still slip into a state of spiritual sleepiness. We have to be aware. We have to be alert, regardless in the best of times or in the absolute worst of times. The second thing I want us to notice is how this happened. I think this is really fascinating as well. Luke, Luke tells us like two different ways, uses two different sets of language to tell us how Eutychus fell asleep. And, and one is that he sunk, in, he sunk into a deep sleep and the other was that he was overwhelmed by sleep. He kind of slipped into this state of sleepiness. And I think that's interesting because when I look at my life and my own relationship with Jesus and my constantly waning like passion and zeal for him, it kind of feels like that sometimes where it's, it's, it's not like one moment I love Jesus and the next I'm like, I'm totally done with you. It's just like a slow slide downward until all of a sudden I realize, man, where are you in my life? 
Do you have top priority in my life? Do I love you the way that I want to and did? Like we don't get the sense that Eutychus was like, Paul, you have talked far too long. I'm gonna throw myself out this window in protest. Like that's not the picture we get at all, right? We see someone who was actually trying. I give him props. He was like trying to hang in there, 12 years old maybe. Maybe even sat up on the window to try to get a little bit of fresh air and stay dialed in. Like I feel for the guy. He was trying, but yet he was still slipping slowly into the state of sleep. And if a point that Luke was trying to make is that same thing can happen to us spiritually, then we have to recognize oftentimes it is a slow fade. We're responsible for our decisions. You don't just wake up one day and be like, whoops. No, we've, we've made choices, bunch of little compromises. But isn't that so often how it goes? We're, we're hyper aware of these massive moments that will like derail our whole relationship with Jesus, but we're very tolerant of the little compromises that eventually will lead us to the state of spiritual sleepiness, which actually I think the enemy loves to keep us at more than just straight out rebellion. I think he'd love to keep us like really dull to the things of the Lord. I think about this, uh, I think about an example of this in my own life and maybe this will like help dial it in for some of you as well. I'm developing my like dad's skill of falling asleep anywhere you know how that's a skill that exists in like all fathers anywhere and everywhere? Everyone's looking at their dads right now. I'm, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. And I'm finding it, uh, I'm finding it popping up a lot when I'm home at night after all the kids go to bed and Megan and I are sitting on our couch. We usually, you know, we put the kids to bed. We get the house kind of set for the next day when we're, when we're at home. And we enjoy sitting on the couch and watching a TV show together or something like that or a movie. And... This couch that we have, you need a little bit of, of context here. This couch that we have has seen some things, okay? It, it has been through a lot. Um, I, we've had it for 15 years. We got it right when we got married. My mom and dad had it before that, and they gifted it to us because they knew we would just pick up a couch like on the side of the road if it was up to us. So they were like, don't get a couch with like a bunch of cockroaches in it or something. You need like a couch. And so they gave us this couch and it's moved across the country a couple times. You know, it's been heavily, heavily used. We have students at our house almost every uh, Sunday night. So almost every Sunday night, they spill something on it. You know, I, I have five kids and so it's everything except for a couch to them. You know, trampoline, jungle gym, you know, safe zone for the floor is lava, all kinds of stuff, right? It's not, it's not a good couch either where like the, the cushions are connected to the back. So they're co it's constantly sliding around. You can't ever get in there. The cushions inside are like slowly deteriorating. I don't know where that stuffing is going. It's kind of alarming that it just disintegrates, but it's slowly like sinking, like deflating, right? And so I tell you, I tell you all that to say this, it's not a very comfortable couch to sit on, um, but it's weirdly a really comfortable couch to lay on. Like, it's not comfortable to sit on, but when I have people come to town and they kick me out of my bed, I'm almost like, yeah, I'm looking forward to a good night's sleep on the old couch there. It's weirdly really, really comfortable. And so when we sit down at the end of the day, and it's been a full day with a lot of like needs and we're already a little bit tired. When I sit on that couch, I know I cannot lay down or else I'm done. It's over. I'll fall asleep in seconds. So I sit up in the, in the less comfortable position. But here's what very, very often will happen. Start by sitting on the couch. And then as time goes on, I just slide. 
I slowly start to slide and sink more and more into that couch. And it's not comfortable. It kind of hurts. I don't really like the way it feels, but I'm slowly sliding, just kind of trying to stay awake. And I know that it's over when eventually I've sunk so far down that I start to go sideways. My head hits the, the actual like couch, right? And, and at that point, I know it's done. It's over. But I don't sit down at the end of the day with the intention of falling asleep. I don't do it. I want to spend time with my wife. I want to enjoy the things that we enjoy doing together, watching TV shows, stuff like that. So I don't sit down. I don't even intend to fall asleep. But what oftentimes does happen is it's this slow slide down until finally I give in. I think the exact same thing is true in our relationship with Jesus, in our zeal, in our passion for him, is we make little, little justified decisions that we can explain around and we can convince ourselves that it's not a big deal. And then all of a sudden we look around and realize, man, my care for Jesus, my zeal and my passion for Jesus is super, super waning. I would actually look at myself and say, I think I'm asleep. I'm not aware of what you're doing. No one starts there, but I think it's very easy to get there if we are not attentive, if we are not alert. Last thing that I wanna mention is what happened. It's pretty straightforward. It's not a trick question. What happened when Eutychus fell asleep? He died. Stakes are high. Spiritual sleepiness comes with high stakes. It's as simple and straightforward as that. When we are separated from God, we're called his enemies, we're called called dead. And when we ignore what he's doing, and when we are unaware of what he's doing, the stakes are really, really high. We grow cold to his presence. We don't care very much about his return. We might find ourselves unprepared because we're too busy snoring to really be aware of what he's doing in the world around us. I think it, it can be easy to convince ourselves that like, well, at least I'm like around. At least I'm like barely holding in there and, and give ourselves a pass on this. But I think it's really important for us to just recognize, stare it straight in the face and say, a sleepy faith leads to some pretty severe consequences for us and for those that God has put in our life that we're supposed to be an example of him to. The stakes are not low in this. The stakes are actually incredibly high. So it seems pretty obvious that at least one of the reasons Luke put this in here is to serve as a warning of how we get there, of how severe like the, the consequences are of living like a sleepy faith, a sleepy relationship with him. But I also believe that this serves as an encouragement to us as well. Because this story could have been an absolute tragedy, um, but look how things panned out. Eutychus fell asleep. He fell out the window and he was dead. And that could have been the end of the story. But what happens? The church stops what it's doing. Paul stops what he's doing. He rushes out there. He embraces him and he brings him back to life. If we are meant to also see this through a spiritual lens, then that is really good for us too who are spiritually tired or spiritually sleepy. So if you're in the room this morning 
And maybe you identify with some of that. Maybe you feel tired. Maybe you feel sleepy. Maybe your faith feels cold or disconnected or empty or whatever metaphor you want to use for it. There's really good news for all of us that there is hope. There is hope for a new life, a fresh touch from the Holy Spirit. We are not a lost cause, but we got to recognize one thing. It does not come from in here. We are so prone to be like, okay, okay, I hear you, Kyle. I'm a little bit sleepy when it comes to my faith. I don't want that to be the case. So I'm just gonna really dig deep. I'm gonna, I'm gonna reach down as far as I can inside myself. I'm gonna pull myself up by my own bootstraps and I'm gonna fix this thing. We're destined for failure if that's how we approach this. Dead things can't bring dead things back to life. Eutychus couldn't bring himself back to life. Paul, through the power of the Holy Spirit, was the only thing that could bring a dead thing back to life. So if you feel like your faith is kind of dead, if you feel like your faith is really sleepy, your own best efforts aren't gonna do anything to fix that. A dependence, a reliance on the Holy Spirit is what's gonna do that. As a dad of five kids who is chronically tired, I am massively dependent on coffee to keep going like massively dependent. I tried to go without it when we did the Daniel fast. It was a rough, rough time, let me tell you. Genuinely, I am dependent. Now that's not a good thing, but man, what a clear picture of the dependence that I should be having on the Holy Spirit to keep me aware of what he's doing and to keep me from slipping into a state where I'm just going through life, going through the motions, barely having my eyes open, or worse, actually just falling asleep completely to the voice and the movement of the spirit. The really, really good news is that if we're there, we do not have to stay there. If we're tired, what we can hear from him today is keep going, keep going, be alert, wake up, keep pressing forward. And if we are dead asleep, we can hear from him today, arise, O sleeper, come to life. That is great, great news for all of us. So I wanna give like a, a practical challenge as we, as we leave this morning. Um, I just, this kind of hit me as I was reading through the last few verses in this passage of scripture. And I'm not making any kind of theological statement about what it is, but the next thing that we find Paul doing after this uh, interaction that he's had, that Luke specifically put there, what we find him doing is sending the rest of his crew on a boat down the coast and him going probably by himself to take a long walk on land and he meets up with them later. We don't know exactly why he did that. There's no details as to why. But I wonder if it's a worthwhile example for us to follow. Like today we've been confronted with whether we're a little sleepy in our faith or not, or whether we're dead asleep in our faith. Maybe a worthwhile thing for us to do this week is to literally go and to take a walk around your neighborhood, down the trail, wherever, and use that focused time to ask God, am I aware of what you're doing? Am I tired? Am I just going through the motions? Am I dead asleep? Am I already out the window? And ask him to do the thing only he can do to revive us, to give us zeal and passion for his heart and his mission, and then to send us out to do the things that he would have us do. We're gonna close our time together uh, by taking communion like we often do. This is another great example that we saw today 
of every time the church got together, this is something that they did. And they actually did this after Eutychus fell out the window, died, and was brought back to life. So in a lot of ways, they were celebrating how something broken can be made new, as something dead can be made alive. And so as we take communion today, maybe that's, maybe that's a good focus for us, just to recognize the life that Jesus brings into each dead or sleepy heart, to show us how we are to live, what we are to be about, and to bring like the joy and fulfillment that comes in because of being secure in that purpose and in that identity. So Jesus took the bread with all his friends and he broke it and he said, my, my body's gonna be broken like this. And in fact, my death is gonna facilitate your life, your ongoing, ever improving life in me. Let's remember that as we take the bread this morning. He passed the cup around. He said, like this wine pours out of this cup, my blood will be poured out. And as I do that, you are gonna be made right with the Father. You are gonna be offered an opportunity to enter into a new covenant, a new life in relationship with God that doesn't just start now and, and end at some point, but will go on forever and ever and ever. Let's remember that as we take the cup together. We pray for us. Jesus, thanks for, uh, thanks for all these examples that you give us of how we are to live. Thanks for um, your grace and your care for us when we are a little lazy sometimes or when we feel overwhelmed sometimes. God, we're really grateful that you warn us that that's coming. And then when we fail, you're willing to pick us up to bring us back, to make us new so that we can continue forward in who you've made us to be and what you've called us to do. Lord, would you give us uh, just an awareness of your spirit this week? Would we not like hinge our relationship with you on like perfect conditions or, or big like crisis moments, but Lord, we would just recognize the slow fade for what it is and be alert and aware that it's coming. And would we find our ultimate um, dependence and power in our lives to combat the, the weapons of the enemy, God, um, in your spirit. We surrender to you. We thank you. We love you. In your name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Point.